The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus van Staden, in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, last week on the show, we talked about two really just fascinating stories going on in the news uh, in Kenya and also the DRC. And we're going to revisit those two topics today with updates on both. First, we're going to give you the latest on the reaction in Kenya to the Chinese hacking story. And then we're going to deep dive into the question of Chinese surveillance technology in Kenya and Africa more broadly. And we've got a fascinating interview scheduled for you today. Also, we're going to update you with uh, all the details of Congolese President Felix Chesekedi's recent visit to China. We're going to speak with our Francophone Africa editor, Giro Nima, uh, towards the end of the show. So make sure you stay tuned for that. Well, in the week since we first broadcast the, the Reuters report that alleged that the Chinese intelligence services had hacked into eight ministry networks in Kenya for the past three years to monitor Chinese debts and China, the status of Chinese loans and, and whether or not they're going to get their money back from the Kenyans. We're not entirely clear on the motivations there, but it was tied to Chinese loans to Kenya. The reactions have come back out of uh, the Kenyans and the Chinese. Now, the Chinese side was rather predictable. So this comes from the spokesperson at the Chinese embassy in Kenya. Let me read a quote for you. There was nothing, they did not appear on radio or TV or anything like that, so we couldn't get, bring you any sound. But uh, let me just read you this quote. They said, the, uh, the false report is groundless, far-fetched, and sheer nonsense. Tracing the source of cyber attacks is a complex technical issue. The relevant media should adopt a professional and responsible attitude and underscore the importance to have enough evidence when conducting reports rather than make groundless assumptions and accusations. Now, the question of evidence and groundless assumptions and accusations comes from the fact that Reuters did not quote on the record any sources. That means they did not name the sources. All of them were uh, unidentified and unnamed. So that is what the Chinese were referring to. Uh, let's also get some reaction now from Raymond Omolo, who is the Principal Secretary for Internal Security in Kenya. This one, Kobus, I'd like to get your take on because it's absolutely fascinating. So here's the quote. The article should be viewed as sponsored propaganda. The wide circulation and the alacrity for its attribution by other foreign media with well-known inclinations further hint at a choreographed and concerted attack against Kenya's sovereignty. That's a much stronger reaction than what we've seen previously on espionage charges, uh, not only in Kenya, but elsewhere. And I guess, Kobus, did that surprise you as much as it did me in terms of how strident it was? 
It was interesting for me. Um, you know, I wasn't particularly surprised that it was strident, but it was interesting that it was immediately linked to to this kind of like larger narratives, like kind of geopolitical narratives about Chinese engagement in the global south. Um, you know, and so, so in that sense, it was it was an interesting moment where you where you got the feeling that this kind of meta critique of critique seems to be becoming more mainstream now you know kind of like it's like people people kind of condemning other people for setting narratives um you know kind of it's, it's something that that we used to focus on a lot and um you know and, and it's, it's very interesting to see how that is becoming now a, a kind of a standard rebuttal you know kind of also coming from governments but there was a whiff of you know in his comments he never said the united states by name but it really felt like he was referring to the United States specifically, because that's the country that has been most aggressive in trying to challenge Chinese technology in Kenya specifically. When he said sponsored propaganda, did you get a sense that he was referring to the United States or am I reading too much into that? That was what I assumed he meant. Um, although, you know, it is, it's vague enough to mean to mean many things, but but that, that seemed to be the kind of the point he was making. Okay, so after the secretary issued those comments, Really, that was, I think, one or two days after. There was probably Saturday or Sunday last week. The story just kind of died away. And in fact, it wasn't even front page news on all of the Kenyan dailies. The Standard had a big layout on it. And that was basically it. And I guess in some ways, it's very interesting when you contrast what we saw last week in this story against the 2018 report by Le Monde that the Chinese had been spying on the African Union headquarters. And then again, there was allegations that Huawei was spying on the African Union headquarters in 2020. In both instances, the story died pretty quickly. But in the eyes of many Kenyans, uh, given everything else that's going on in the news, it really didn't register as a big story. And it really didn't take off on social media. It didn't take off in the press. However, though, I want to bring you a little bit of sound because it sounds like you know, people are having fun with the story. So I want to bring you a, a little take from uh, the KISS FM breakfast show hosted by Cheeto and Quambox. And this is their take on the hacking story. And I, and I want to get your reaction. It's quite funny. So Chinese hackers are allegedly, allegedly, mm-hmm. ac- this is according to the papers. Yes. Chinese hackers have gov- hacked government systems Whew. and it's suspected that they want to find out what strategy we have to pay back the ballooning debt. But see, we've been As saying in, our strategy. Wanna, you know, you, know, you know how like you, some, you loan someone chums uh-huh. and then you see them on the Roomba <laughs> that, and then they're telling you they don't have the money to pay you. Yeah. So you're scouring <laughs> their Instagram. To see who you are and then To see what are you, how are you, what strategy steps are you making to pay my money back? So, you know, man, this is probably why the president is losing it. <laughs> no, for me, what China is reminding me of is the Mubaba that's paying rent for his katoi, <laughs> for his kashore. He's giving her rent and then she's bringing a younger guy to the house. He's like, Mm-mm. But someone tell the Chinese. We need to guys. find a solution, Bana. Someone tell the Chinese. There's a German proverb, not a Chinese proverb, not a Kenyan proverb. We need a middleman. I feel like this is a, this is a combox proverb. There's a Chinese proverb uh-huh. which says, he who is quick to borrow is slow to pay. <laughs> so, Tafavali. There we go. So this is the equivalent of scrolling through the Instagram and looking to see who, if they're spending your money well. So, <laughs> but that, I think, Kobus, that really does kind of speak to the fact that this is where we are today now. 
that this isn't the scandal that it used to be. And literally morning DJs are having fun with the story. Yeah, I mean, it's also the, the detail that, that the, or the allegation that the hacking was in order to check what's happening with debt repayments is just endlessly revealing and funny, if true, you know. Um, and a, 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 an amazing kind of like temperature check of the, the I think, Africa-China relationship more generally. So, it's, yeah, it's, it's funny for me. Well, yeah, and I, and I thought it was interesting because some of the analysis was, was actually on the fact that this reveals more insecurity on the side of the Chinese than on the Kenyans that they're really worried about their money. You know, it's that whole story that if you borrow a million dollars from the bank, it's your problem. If you borrow a billion dollars from the bank, it's their problem. And this kind of speaks to the fact that they might be really genuinely concerned that they're overextended on some of these loans. They're, they're clearly worried about it. Well, the timing of this story and our guest today just couldn't be better. We are thrilled to have on the show for the first time, Bulelani Jili, who is a Meta PhD research fellow at Harvard University. He is also a visiting fellow at the Yale Law School, a fellow at the Atlantic Council, a cybersecurity fellow at the Belfer Center, and a scholar in residence at the Electronic Privacy Information Center. Uh, Bulelani is also the author of a number of articles on Chinese technology in Africa. And the most recent one is What is Driving the Adoption of Chinese Surveillance Technology in Africa? that was published earlier this month by the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Lab. A very good morning to you in Cambridge, Bulelani. Uh, hello, and uh, just uh, I would first like you just to thank you uh, for having me on this platform. And I've also been, you know, an adamant uh, listener of the podcast uh, over the years. Well, we are thrilled to have you. This is really our honor because you have been writing such insightful analysis on this issue, and you've taken a very different approach to it. And we're going to get into that, whereas most people focus on Chinese technology going into Africa, almost the push of Chinese technology. You're focusing on the pull, what's driving the demand, and we're going to get into that. But before we get into your paper and your research, what I'd like to do is get your hot take on the Reuters report that alleged uh, the Chinese intelligence services had been hacking. What was your take? And, and also any of the reaction to the KISS FM kind of take and the reaction that the Kenyans seem to have to this issue? Well, you know, I'd probably say that, you know, my opinion um, on this matter, I guess, uh, relies really on kind of two observations. Uh, the one kind of general observation is that like uh, debt now is, you know, the primary mode in which we are reading Africa-China relations. And so, all activity as relates to this kind of bilateral and multilateral relation will be consistently mediated by questions surrounding debt. Um, and so uh, what I guess I'm kind of keen to kind of continue to think about is how debt in itself functions as a way of reading relations and the kind of the political and economic life that debt takes on in the relationship and as it kind of relates to the more kind of direct question really around cybersecurity, uh, what is becoming quite clear um, is that the general uh, trepidations surrounding cybersecurity at one level are connected to general suspicions about Chinese surveillance. Uh, and then the other part of it is really kind of connected with, uh, you know, questions around the integrity surrounding the proliferation of some of, of these systems. Um, 
obviously, you know, uh, on the kind of Kenya side, you know, they're able to somewhat joke about it um, and the, uh, and they're able to kind of see the kind of the humor in it. Um, and I think, you know, that the humor is probably connected to the fact that like, uh, you know, uh, that, that, you know, m- many people see, you know, that, you know, the a massive amount of, of borrowing is not simply a challenge that, you know, Kenya has to think about, but it is also a problem that the Chinese um, are now facing. Um, and then, you know, it is really also about, you know, whether or not, you know, that in fact you can, you know, seriously ground some of these allegations, um, particularly when they're so, you know, particular, like, you know, ab- about debt and not simply a more kind of general, uh, you know, cyber threat. It seems as though that, like, uh, they're even questioning the nature of the allegation, but also what is the basis of evidence uh, that would allow you to kind of draw attribution, uh, not simply to the, the hacking teams themselves, but also directly to the state. So, Bulalani, in, in terms of, you know, the this wider issue that you focus in in your work, the around Chinese networks, cybersecurity and their application in, in Africa, um, how does the Kenyan situation as we as we understand it at the moment play into that narrative because one of the things that i was wondering about is to which extent is this proving the narrative that chinese chinese built networks have these these weak spots or these back doors that enable surveillance and to which extent doesn't it because as far as i understand the the access like if, if one follows the reuters story the access was was gained through the kind of old old timey kind of way of sending someone an infected attachment which they then downloaded so it does it didn't to my mind necessarily kind of reveal any kind of built-in weaknesses in the network that provided access even but i might they, they might be more there than i'm that i'm not seeing to your mind kind of how do, does it prove or disprove or maybe you know kind of is are we somewhere in the middle in relation to this this kind of narrative of chinese networks allowing unwarranted access yeah sure so i you know how i observe it is that it's really kind of seen in in the more general continuation of concerns surrounding uh you know chinese kind of cyber capabilities at kind of one level uh much of the general literature has focused on you know uh, backdoor access um, and how you know Chinese technologies come with particular vulnerabilities, and those vulnerabilities are not simply you know technical glitches, but they are you know uh, a, a political intention uh, that is connected you know to state espionage. And then another kind of popular line of consideration uh, is not simply connected only to the kind of uh, vulnerabilities of the technology, but simply the technologies. Uh, being surveillance and cyber intrusive systems themselves and how, you know, the Chinese are enabling the proliferation of these systems as a way to, uh, you know, challenge, uh, you know, the, I'd say, you know, the American normative position around cyberspace, uh, but also uh, around governance. And so that is generally kind of connected with the thesis of kind of digital authoritarianism, and then this particular instance is really about uh, concerns around um, hacking and how, um, you know, the Chinese have been kind of thought to be 
you know, a partner uh, with uh, either small startups or simply uh, kind of hacking teams that, you know, have been uh, in parts deployed in order to instrumentalize and pursue um, Chinese interests. Um, and so, you know, this concern is in generally a kind of a, a general continuation of concerns around uh, kind of cyberspace functioning as uh, a new theater of political geopolitical contention um, and how it necessarily proves or disproves uh, a thesis, you know, surrounding saying uh, the Chinese being intentional nefarious actors is is not necessarily at least connected to kind of the traditional tropes of either digital uh, uh, authoritarianism or cyber weaknesses, but it's kind of connected to um, really another uh, suspicion, uh, which is is that you know. Uh, the Chinese are using uh, hackers as a way to kind of promote state interests. And even if one could, uh, you know, prove that in, in this kind of case with Kenya, that would not necessarily be a deviation of, you know, of, you know, already kind of seen observations about how state actors have already weaponized, uh, you know, hackers in the past. It's obviously... Uh, problematic, but it's not necessarily in, in, you know, in deviation to the kind of expectations uh, around the use of hackers. Well, let's pick up on that theme of using cyber espionage and hacking to pursue state interests in many parts of the world, in Europe, the United States, even parts of here in Asia as well. Uh, countries have banned the use of Chinese surveillance systems from companies like Huawei, ZTE, Hikvision, That is not the case in most African countries, especially in Kenya, where there is a considerable demand and quite a bit of adoption of digital infrastructure made by Chinese companies for surveillance. This has been the focus of your research now for the past couple of years. You you have this new paper that came out earlier this month uh, by the Atlantic that was published on the Atlantic Council. Let's dive into that. But I think before we get into some of the broad themes that you address. I'd like to go through just a few definitions just so we can set our terms. Because when we talk about Chinese surveillance tools, to some people, particularly in the United States and China's critics, basically any piece of technology built by the Chinese in their mind is a possible surveillance tool. How are you defining uh, surveillance tools in your research? Sure. Uh, So when I'm thinking of surveillance tools, I am thinking... Um, you know, of a number of assemblages of systems that either, you know, directly participate in monitoring. And so that could be, you know, CCTV cameras to kind of digital facial recognition systems uh, to kind of uh, cyber intrusive systems. And so that could be malware in particular that's, you know, being designed with the purposes of uh, monitoring. Um, and so uh, when I kind of use it in my work, I'm I'm really thinking um, carefully about the mass proliferation and use of systems whose design uh, is around, um, you know, the gathering of either personal data or simply making, you know, visual observations uh, about persons. Okay. Uh, now, go, okay, go ahead. Yep, sorry, just if I could just stop you there very quickly, just so we 
were very clear. Do you consider TikTok to be part of that because it's the gathering of personal data? Or do you consider Huawei phones and Huawei technology and Transcend phones, techno, to be all part of that because they too collect personal data and they can be used to surveil uh, at a corporate level, but not necessarily at a state interest level. But I'm curious where you draw the line between the consumer tech and the the more infrastructure technology. Yeah, so, you know, most of my work has thus far mostly focused on the kind of infrastructure uh, of surveillance uh, and not necessarily the kind of consumer products. Uh, although there is, you know, a healthy body of literature that is preoccupied with kind of uh, the mass proliferation of, uh, you know, consumer goods and how they can be, uh, you know, engineered to pursue monitoring practices. Um, you know, my work itself does not particularly think uh, of, say, you know, TikTok um, as a surveillance instrument, um, uh, even though that is a kind of a more kind of, um, I'd argue, a kind of a corporate-led, um, you know, uh, surveillance operation if if one is conceptualizing surveillance, at least in this case, as the kind of um, collection of data for kind of corporate interests. But in my work, that's not the focus. And another kind of context question, um, you know, what kind of metrics or what kind of benchmarks do, should one use when one evaluates the relative safety or non-safety of a network like what what are what are some of what are some of the kind of ways that one would judge that this is a safe network or a non-safe network well you know i'd say you know conventionally when people are thinking uh about uh the safety of networks they're really uh, thinking about uh the nature of the you know vulnerabilities of, of the technology and so you know uh, you know, has, you know, say this um, surveillance camera or this digital facial recognition system, um, you know, is it been, has it been intentionally designed with gaps that will allow, you know, uh, you know, parties to, you know, collect data unknowingly uh, or allowed to effectively make observations unknowingly to the parties that procured the technology. Um, and so I'd argue that the the general nature of the kind of current research surrounding this really uses a benchmark of around effectively illicit parties being able to get access to the network. Now, uh, how does one go about, you know, uh, saying establishing that uh, is is the kind of the the questions concerning around you know the kind of the technical safety of kind of given uh, product um, and usually when you're uh, thinking about you know uh, the safety surrounding certain say products that are being offered by you know Chinese vendors um, most of the uh, of the products uh, you know say using Huawei, for example, are, are, are relatively safe. Um, but, you know, uh, research has kind of gone into other kind of Chinese vendors who have found the vulnerabilities uh, uh, of other products offered by, you know, other Chinese providers. But the question for me is not simply at the level of vulnerability of the system. It is also the presumption of intention surrounding the vulnerabilities of those systems. So, you know, is it simply about 
being able to say, oh, you know, this camera has a vulnerability and therefore this vulnerability is a continuation of a political agenda or is it simply, you know, an, um, an engineering problem, right? And so for me, you know, what is the, both the practical and conceptual distance between uh, being able to identify a vulnerability in a technology as a consequence of, uh, you know, mediocre engineering to this is a part of a, of a broader uh, initiative that is both connected to a private actor and a state actor who are kind of commingled in the pursuit of uh, of a uh, you know of a geopolitical agenda. So we know a lot about what China wants to accomplish by selling Huawei and ZTE and all this networking equipment in terms of trying to grow market share to generate revenue, also to establish itself as the five G standard and the benchmark. All of that, and, and you noted in your paper that so much of the research. In the, U- in the U.S., Europe, and even in China itself, focuses on what China's motivations are, but much less is done based on what African priorities are, specifically in Kenya. The assumption that many of us make is that the Chinese come with an offer that is just far more competitive than what anybody else can come with. So when Huawei sits down in front of the Safaricom executive and says, my name is, you know, is Mr. Zhang. This is Mr. Wang from the China Exim Bank. I'm going to talk to you about the technology, and he's going to talk to you about the financing. It's obviously a lot more complicated than that, but if you could maybe now let's dive into a little bit on your theory here about what are the motivations on the part of companies like Safaricom, governments as well in East Africa and elsewhere, as to why they seem to prefer working with Chinese suppliers for certain parts of their network, not all, but certain parts, and what the what the attraction is, and that this is a demand-driven business here. Yeah, sure. You know, um, you know, the general success of, say, you know, Chinese companies in Africa, uh, you know, looks um, a bit befuddling if you think of, you know, the success uh, of these companies in, you know, in a kind of a short window frame. So if you're thinking about it's for the last five or 10 years. But if you kind of extend your kind of, you know, period of observation, what becomes clear is that like, uh, you know, Chinese companies like Huawei um, have been operating in East Africa really since the, you know, since about the late mid nineties. Um, and they kind of came in at a time uh, where, you know, uh, many American companies simply were not participating in the ICT sector, uh, you know, um, and that's in part because of, you know, concerns surrounding, uh, you know, risks um, in making investments on the continent. And so in some sense, you know, their kind of early introduction engagement with the South Af- uh, with the kind of Southern African economies and East African economies is one part. Another part of it is kind of connected to you know, uh, the politics in Beijing and wanting to kind of give the kind of corporate actors more international experience. And so there was, um, you know, a series of financial incentive infrastructure that was put together, both for kind of, you know, uh, uh, kind of SOEs and private uh, companies to kind of go abroad. And then when you're thinking about 
their most kind of recent successes, they're all kind of connected to, you know, uh, the fact that they've kind of been operating um, in these regions for a long time with uh, regional expertise at this point. Um, and it is also partly true uh, that, you know, that they usually offer, you know, products that are a bit more financially reachable uh, for, you know, African, you know, counterparts. And so in some sense, you know, when we're thinking about the general success, we're, you were really thinking about, you know, headwinds that have been, uh, you know, met with kind of, you know, continual engagement um, on the continent. Uh, yeah. And in, in terms of the African government's priorities, um, you, you mentioned the the prevalence of or the, the the prominence of crime in 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 some of your writing um do do you find that when african governments put in particularly safe city systems um and it might be good for you to just just kind of describe a little bit what safe and smart city systems are um to begin with but um then when when they put them in like what, what are the expectations for how they're going to improve things sure Sure. You know, so when you kind of both look at um, some of the, you know, uh, meeting minutes, some of the general advertising of these given products, and even when you kind of listen to kind of African stakeholders about the reasons uh, behind, you know, the adoption of safe city systems, uh, which are really a version of smart city systems, which are a kind of, you know, compute driven urban planning that aims to leverage uh, ICT infrastructure, which is kind of information and communication technology systems uh, for the kind of the advancement, both of kind of safety within uh, a given space, uh, but also the general promotion of greater administrative, um, you know, efficiencies. And so when, you know, we're thinking particularly about uh, the kind of safety that can be offered by, you know, a smart city, it's mostly reliant on an assemblage of uh, surveillance systems. And so that would include both kind of uh, digital uh, CCTV cameras, but it would also, you know, include uh, systems like, uh, you know, traffic control, which will be mostly uh, around, you know, the means to kind of locate and identify uh, vehicles. Uh, and the, the, the procurement of those systems is kind of connected with uh, more general development ambitions. Um, and those ambitions are kind of connected to, you know, being able to ameliorate like a, a perennial challenge like crime or terror in the context uh, of Kenya, uh, but also with kind of connected uh, you know, to being able to improve the general efficiencies of the given state. And, you know, much of my work has been really interested in really seeing whether or not some of these systems are able to meet some of the general expectations that have been placed upon it. And it becomes actually quite challenging uh, to be able to find, you know, concrete evidence that will suggest to you that like the general adoption of, say, you know, uh, an integrated urban surveillance system uh, has been, in fact, able to truncate crime, particularly in the areas that have been able to support, uh, you know, the police in, in both in their monitoring and kind of the policing efforts. 
And to me, what that generally illustrates um, is that, like, you know, a matter like crime cannot simply be reduced or presumed to be simply uh, a factor of the absence of surveillance. You know, um, the reality is, is that, you know, crime is a kind of a social economic challenge that is connected to multiple uh, causal linkages surrounding, you know, questions around, say, you know, access uh, to goods, to, you know, poverty, uh, rather than simply being able to kind of uh, introduce a mask surveillance system. And so the question then for me is, uh, if one is kind of able to generally make that concession of complexity to, you know, social problems, then how can surveillance then be best applied uh, rather than kind of uh, misunderstood or misused. So let me see if I understand what you're saying. So the idea that, and this is part of the Huawei sales pitch, which is if you install our smart city program, it can help you bring down crime and it can make your traffic flow more efficiently and it can make your city safer. That is, in fact, I think safer is in, even in the brand name. The But you're saying that without that by itself is not going to do it. You also need a governance structure underneath. You need competent policing. You need good infrastructure. You need all the support systems around the Safe City initiative. Otherwise, the surveillance by itself is not going to move the needle on crime. Is that a, a fair assessment of what you're saying? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, the, the reality is, is that, like, you know, uh, technologies uh, and in particular surveillance are not a, a silver bullet to kind of traditional social economic challenges. Uh, they can either function as an aid or an exacerbating catalyst. And so the question then becomes is how does one appropriately apply some of these systems already in a complex network of social kind of um, uh, relations? Um, and currently, you know, there's not been, I'd argue, enough kind of uh, thinking both about why these systems are being procured on the ground, but also when you get to the ground, exactly how can some of these tools be best applied for kind of uh, context-dependent uh, solution-making. So in the environments where there's weak governance, the temptation is there for political leaders to use this technology against their opponents. And there was some reporting by the Wall Street Journal several years ago that indicated that Huawei technology, and I want to be very clear here that this was not Huawei the company, it was Huawei technology, was used to spy on Bobby Wine, the opposition leader in Uganda, uh, former Zambian president Edgar Lungu also apparently used it. This, there were similar allegations in Ecuador as well. Again, the, the disclaimer here is that, and a very important point to, to note here is that this was not done by Huawei company corporate actors, it was done by the, the governments themselves using Huawei technology. So I guess the question I have is that it's hard for some authoritarian rulers uh, in order to, to resist using this technology to violate civil liberties. What is the impact on civil liberties in countries with weak governance? And again, I'm not suggesting that Kenya is a country with weak governance, but it'd be interesting just to tie this to your research in Kenya as well. Yeah, sure. Um, and, you know, that's the kind of, uh, I'd say, the perennial challenge of introducing any kind of new surveillance system into, uh, you know, a political and legal ecosystem is, uh, in effect, how do we best utilize it for the promotion of civil liberties? And in particular, 
when it's being introduced without thinking about, you know, a careful impact assessment or simply uh, how this technology can be further integrated into, you know, just uses of uh, policing uh, functions and capabilities, it then can, you know, uh, result in an atrophy uh, of civil liberties. And so, you know, that kind of example of the Uganda case has kind of been the kind of the standard example that's been used uh, across academia, but I'd also kind of say within the, you know, uh, NGO space uh, surrounding digital rights. And so for me, you know, the the question uh, kind of persists in terms of, uh, you know, uh, how do we fairly distribute responsibility for the atrophy of civil liberties? At one level, it's important to kind of, you know, uh, point out that like, uh, you know, governments with kind of challenging and sometimes weak uh, legal infrastructure um, can misuse and sometimes abuse uh, surveillance technologies, even though they're procured under, you know, ostensibly permissible grounds like, uh, you know, trying to promote, uh, you know, safety. While simultaneously, it is also important to ask uh, for accountability on the companies that are also selling some of these surveillance systems, particularly the surveillance systems that you know, uh, you know, are thought to be on board in terms of being able to promote uh, leasing. Uh, you know, are they thinking more carefully about exactly who are they selling these governments to, and are there general discussions about? Uh, the both the appropriate use of these systems, but also thinking more carefully about exactly how some of these technologies will land on the ground, uh, you know. And so, you know, much of my work has been really about thinking more carefully about uh, a fairer allocation of blame uh, surrounding, you know, uh, the kind of recession of civil liberties, particularly in the kind of quick adoption of uh, surveillance uh, technologies. And, you know, what I've tried to consistently argue in my work is that uh, what we're seeing in terms of the, uh, say, the challenge of civil liberties at one level is about the, uh, the quick adoption of surveillance systems, but also the kind of lack of um, kind of robust uh, checks and balances. And so it's that gap that just, uh, that is really resulting in some of the challenges. And it's not simply connected to, you know, um, Chinese, uh, you know, uh, authoritarian push or simply contingent on, uh, you know, African wants to kind of, you know, further retreat from a democratic project. But it's kind of in a more kind of entanglement that is producing a negative outcome. Yeah, and Kobus, I think it's important to even correct the premise of my question, to, you know, that was, this is not a problem unique to African weak governance societies. We know from the Snowden Papers, and we know from countless reporting in the United States and even in Europe, that there's been problems with violating civil liberties by governments using technology without warrants and, and not following due process. So th let's be very clear, this is not uniquely an African challenge, nor one with Huawei. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one one slightly more one challenge that 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 I've seen repeatedly show up in the Africa-China relationship, specifically, and one that you that you point to as well, is very 
patchy or unsatisfying kind of training and technology transfer experiences where frequently the African um, officials are not particularly shown how any of this works uh, or how any of these systems work and then also um, that the systems frequently start breaking down very quickly after implementation and, we, and we, we've seen similar complaints about other forms of, t of Chinese infrastructure and technology in, in Africa as well. I was wondering if you could talk us through what's going on in that situation because on the one hand it seems you know if, if you if you're spending millions of dollars on on buying you know a, a technological system then getting getting uh, you know demanding kind of grounded instruction from the makers of that system to how to run it and how to fix it seems like a no-brainer so i was wondering what what are some of the dynamics involved in that kind of like training breakdown that that you've also outlined outlined in some of your writing yeah sure i think i think you know you're asking a very important question in part because you know uh, you know what is the nature of due diligence in the procurement of some of these surveillance systems because at one level it's it's quite obvious that at some point you're going to require kind of domestic capabilities to both use the technology but also to effectively maintain it over time and in some of the cases um, that I've kind of seen but also some of the work that I've done it seems to kind of um, consistently appear that there's not been, you know, it, enough work done on the demand side as to how to maintain these technologies over time. Uh, you know, some of the challenges have been simply about, you know, uh, not having the appropriate permit to build a camera in a certain area. But sometimes they've also gone simply as deep as saying that, like, the current, you know, uh, you know, policing units has not been adequately trained um, in using this technology. And so, you know, at least uh, in the context of Kenya, there have been uh, a number of initiatives to kind of improve um, the kind of, you know, the, the training around the use of surveillance systems. But it doesn't particularly seem to me as though that, like, the training has been comprehensive uh, enough to kind of allow for you know the use of the of the system independent of the contractor, uh, but also uh, a kind of training that also takes into kind of deep consideration. Um, you know the consequences for civil liberties, and now that general challenge also might simply come out of the fact that, like uh, you know, some of these uh, technologies and their consequences for civil liberties are relatively novel. So if you kind of look into the history, particularly of, say, data protection uh, in the context of Africa, you know, uh, the reality is, is that, like, you know, a lot of kind of data protection regimes, you know, are not older, usually than five years old. And in, and in the context of Kenya, you know, the data commissioner office is really only about two point, uh, it's about two and a half years old, uh, and how that general instruction will both inform the use of technology by private actors, but also by public actors um, is important. And so to me, it seems as though that there kind of needs to be uh, a more comprehensive understanding of, of how exactly these technologies will be kind of um, both used, but also uh, used appropriately that meets some of the general human rights expectations uh, surrounding them. And that then means that, you know, 
that the procurement cannot simply be just driven with, say, you know, uh, with, uh, you know, a, a state SOE leading the charge, but it kind of has to have a kind of a, a multi-stake approach to it where, you know, um, it's both, you know, uh, you know, uh, people, you know, from companies like Safaricom all the way to the national police, but also to a data commissioner, but also to a kind of, you know, um, you know, a leading kind of digital rights institute. And so, in that sense, to me, that there's really not been en- enough of a, a multi-stakeholder approach to how uh, these technologies both would be kind of procured then, but also finally how they'll be exactly used on the ground. Very quickly before we go, and you didn't cover this in your paper, but I'm just really interested to get your take on how you feel artificial intelligence is going to impact this whole discourse about Chinese surveillance technology in Kenya and Africa more broadly? Yeah, sure. You know, uh, I'd say that, you know, AI systems have um, kind of um, almost um, could probably have a profound impact, uh, uh, specifically at least in the surveillance uh, space. And which, you know, some of my work in itself kind of touches a bit about kind of AI facial recognition systems. Uh, But, you know, I think the nature of your question is a bit more broad. and and so, you know, I kind of, you know, gesture towards at least how we're currently thinking about AI, which is, is that, you know, most people, when they're presenting the challenges of, of AI, they believe that, you know, it's, it could be an encroaching dystopic outcome where, you know, humanity is kind of, you know, rendered subordinate to technology or that, you know, this instrument will result in, you know, the decimation of multiple sectors. Uh, but to me, you know, that kind of dystopic outcome would simply be a consequence of, uh, you know, the the absence of kind of responsibility in terms of how it can be appropriately adopted. And so to me, the question for kind of AI adoption, um, more generally on the continent, would really about be thinking about more carefully about where exactly can AI be efficiently used in order to promote states uh, and local interests rather than simply presuming that like, you know, uh, you know, AI will be kind of, um, you know, used um, and misused. Uh, uh, But, you know, at least when we're thinking about AI kind of outside, uh, say, the state use and state driven application of AI, um, what is clear to me um, is that, you know, there is an, a growing AI sector locally uh, and that that AI sector also kind of needs to be kind of included in thinking about, you know, AI. Um, thus far, you know, I'd argue that majority of the kind of general coverage surrounding both AI and AI adoption in the context uh, of Africa-China relations is once again uh, a general privileging of state actors and not really thinking about sub-state actors. Um, you know, the multiple kind of AI startup companies that also have a stake in the sector. And many of them usually have, you know, challenges both around kind of um, access to capital, access to kind of training engineers and, um, you know, um, access to kind of quality data. Um, and that, you know, a more inclusive uh, AI future will be also contingent on effectively including that sector, but also promoting that sector. 
The article is What is Driving the Adoption of Chinese Surveillance Technology in Africa? It was published by the Atlanta Council's Digital Forensic Lab. They do some fantastic work. Also, if you're interested in this topic, and I know a lot of you are, you're doing research on this, I highly recommend a chapter that Bulilani also wrote in a book called The Africa-Europe Cooperation and Digital Transformation, a focus on Ethiopia and Kenya. The chapter is entitled The Spread of Chinese Surveillance Tools in Africa. Uh, this is a 2022 book, so the information is very, very current. And best of all, Cobus, get this. It's a Routledge book. It's an academic book. And it's free. It's under Creative Commons. That is not something that we hear very often on this show. So we're very excited to be able to tell people you can go get some academic writing for free. So I will put links to both the article and the book chapter in the show notes for you to access. Uh, Bulelani, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. Sure, definitely. And uh, thank you for having me. And, you know, uh, you know, I would love to kind of keep the conversation going. Kobus, Bulelani's research really fills an important void in the discourse because so much is, again, on the push, what the Chinese are doing in places like Africa, and there's very little on the pull on what the agency question is for African actors. And again, it's not always the state. There are a lot of private actors here. MTN, I'm thinking about in South Africa, Safaricom, Telebur, all of these, uh, you know, these, 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 these telecom operators as well are, have, have a lot of agency here. And again, I think what he's doing is so important. And I hope that when people look at the question of Chinese surveillance tech in Africa, they're not just focusing on what the Chinese want or what the Chinese are doing, but also what African stakeholders want and what they're doing. Absolutely. I think it's it's really important. His work is a great corrective to the, the flattening that one sees, you know, frequently in this debate. So, you know, frequently on I think to the to the the right of this of the political spectrum, the, the the debate is frequently flattened in terms of there's an assumption that A that the Chinese everything the Chinese do is centrally coordinated and malign. But then also the assumption that whichever kind of global South government and Africa frequently, you know, kind of lands in that position is easily duped by these kind of outside interests. And then on the more left-wing side of that same debate, there's frequently a, a, a different kind of flattening that happens where it's simply a, where, where under the label of African agency, they simply assume that African governments have great plans to do things and that they have very kind of clear-cut goals and then that they put in place systems in order to deal with some of these problems. You know, and I think I think both of these kind of flattenings tend to be very unrealistic. What what I think is his is work is great at pointing out is... is is the the kind of lapses or disorganization or kind of systemic gaps that show up on the African side, which then frequently lead to to kind of less than ideal outcomes on the ground. And I think um, it's fantastic to to kind of unpack what some of the dynamics are on the African side, you know, not only what they want to achieve, but also what end up kind of standing in the way of achieving that um, when they're dealing with Chinese actors. It's super important. Well, we're really excited to have Bulelani to join us again on the show to update us on his research, in part because this story is changing so quickly. We talked about AI at the end of the discussion I suspect that in three or four months that AI issue is going to be vastly more important 
in Kenya and South Africa and elsewhere in Africa than it is today, just because it's growing everywhere. So we'll we'll follow back up with him. And tech is obviously one of the areas that I'm most interested in. So I love nerding out on that. Okay, let's now shift gears. There, there's another story, and we apologize today. We're going to go a little bit longer with the show than we normally do, but we have to talk about Congolese President Felix Tshisekedi's trip to China that ended this week. So last week he started off and he was in Beijing, and then he went to Shanghai, Shenzhen, and then Hong Kong, and now he is on his way back home as we record this, or he's probably back home now. Uh, For that, we're thrilled to have, as always, our resident Congolese China expert, Francophone editor, Jeronima Bonsoir. Jero, thank you for joining us. It's wonderful to have you back on the show. You've been covering this issue, you know, minute by minute. You've been talking to people in Kinshasa, you've been talking to people in Beijing and elsewhere, you've been following all the events. Let's get your debrief now on Chesakati's visit to China. What did he accomplish and what did he not accomplish? Bonsoir, good evening everybody. I'm really happy to be back and uh, to kind of give you the debrief of really what I, of what unfolded um, in Beijing last week and uh, earlier this week uh, Earlier this week, when President Shisekedi, I think, left China yesterday, 29th of May, when uh, when he was supposed to leave China from Hong Kong. So what did he do? What did he not do? What did he accomplish? What did he not accomplish? It's a very, it's really going to be really interesting because when, especially when it's taken into account the, all the media hype before his trip to China and what really came out of it, many people really might be are really going to be disappointed. So the context is um, before his trip to China, many were expecting him to arrive to China with uh, with that goal of renegotiating the 2008 contract that was signed between Chinese companies, state-owned companies and the DRC that gave birth to the Sikho Min deal that's, that's known by many. So he arrived in Beijing, many were expecting that to be the part of the discussion and maybe were hoping that we're going to see something. I remember in our coverage of that story since last week, we kind of warned people about the fact that we have to be really wise and prudent about the, about what you think might come out from this um, from this trip. And uh, unfortunately, we were kind of right. I say unfortunately because from the Congolese perspective, as from Congolese population, they might have expected something really great to come out of it. But in fact, what came out was not really great. So first, what did not come out from the trip first? There was no renegotiation contract uh, during his trip in Beijing. And even the spokesperson of the Congolese government was with him, said that the question was not talked with the President Xi Jinping from China. So there was no renegotiation. What we know, we do know that there was like some, you know, some discussion around it. We do know that he expressed the need to have a much uh, balanced view, a much balanced uh, agreement and um, arrangement with China when he met with Zhao Lezi and uh, with Li Tiang, he expressed that view. But with President Xi Jinping, with President Xi Jinping the question was not spoken about. So, And just, just, I'm sorry, just so we're clear here, when you're talking about the renegotiation of those contracts, you're referring to the $6 billion Sikko means deal, and you're also talking about the massive Tenke Fungurume copper cobalt mine deal as well, right? 
I'm more focusing on the SICOM Indy because on the China Molibedom and the Teke Fungurman project, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a different story since there was an announcement made last April and uh, it's a really different ball game here. But the SICOM Indy was the more uh, significant one because it's the more political one, the more, the more political charged uh, deal that was really on the table. So... There was no renegotiation about that. Uh, what so what really the DRC got from this trip? There was China and DRC upgraded the diplomatic relation to strategic comprehensive. I think it's global strategic comprehensive partnership. If I get it right. So, which means they're going to have increased diplomatic relations and high-level visits, more economic and, um, uh, and trade relations. They're going to have cooperation in different areas, in security, in agriculture. President Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping says going to send agriculture experts from China to help the US in with the agriculture project. So many different projects they've talked about. They even signed four memorandum of understandings for MOUs in different areas, in media, in research research in different areas. So not really things that people are expecting to see new big deal happen, for example, in mining. So there was no renegotiation. There was no big deal signed. That's what people need to know. There was more, in total, there were five memorandum of understanding, four signed in Beijing and one signed in Shenzhen when he, when he went to, to, to Huawei, to the Huawei headquarters where they sent a MOU around building a DRC technological, technological project in the country. So, that's what really come out of it. So another thing that's come out of this trip is the fact that at the end, they had that joint communique with DRC and with China. In the communique, you could feel that how China was kind of balancing the stick and the carrot. The, the carrot is saying that China is willing to invest more in DRC, to diversify its uh, its investment in DRC. China is really willing to accompany DRC in its development process and letting DRC choose the direction it needs to go and, you know, praising all the all DRC project and even mention about DRC freedom to choose its dev path for development, all of those things. But in the other hand, it's also mentioned the fact that it's also expressed China worriness and concern about the state of uh, Chinese mining investment right now in the country. It, it expressed what Xi Jinping, what Tingang uh, has said to the Congolese uh, Foreign Minister when they met a few days earlier by saying that they're kind of worried about the climate they do find right now in the DRC in terms of security of the investment and they would like to see more fairness more pragmatism and more long-term views of their relationship in a, way to in a way to evaluate the mining investment and the Chinese project in the countries. So you can see in that communique how China kind of balanced you know, the stick and the carrot at the same time. Just to tell you that, you know, China is saying we are willing to, to remain in DRC. We want to stay in DRC, but clearly we won't be bullied in the DRC. We're going to fight until the end if we need to fight, but we don't want to fight. But if we need to fight, we're going to fight really to protect our interests. So basically, what was the result? If I have to rate it out of 10... If you if you take to, to in, you take into account all the media hype, all everything that was said before, and what came out of it, and what people might expect it, I'd say it was a three out of ten in terms of in, in terms in terms of the in terms of uh, that's not very high. That's it's not, not really I mean, very high. A, it's not really very it's a high. Good solid D minus there, maybe you know. 
yeah, it's three out of ten. I hope I could give more, but it's a three out of ten because nothing significant was really achieved. People can talk about the comprehensive partnership, but you know, it's a it's a partnership. It it, it will depend on DLC what the content they put in it to depend if they're gonna really get if if it's gonna come out with really positive things. But beyond that, it just also it just a diplomatic relation. So I really don't think that it was a positive trip at the end. Where does this leave China's position in relation to the DRC? Because, you know, obviously, as, as you mentioned, China is by far and away the more powerful actor here, the more powerful negotiating partner. But at the same time, I mean, China has some real uh, vulnerabilities in relation to the DRC, particularly the fact that it has a massive domestic cobalt refining industry, which essentially, and battery building industry, which is essentially solely dependent on, on cobalt from the DRC. So does this open China to the possibility of the DRC starting to kind of sniff around other possible partners, specifically considering that, you know, that both the Europeans and, and the Americans are, you know, in theory, interested in working with the DRC, even if their companies might not be interested in reality? So from China's position, the DRC, it's, it still remains solid overall because uh, when, you, when you listen to what the Congolese delegation had to say, what the spokesperson has to say about the trip, it was really positive in a way that it still expect, it still wants China to remain in the country. They still talk, they're talking about renewed relationship. And President Chisekedi in his press conference with the Congolese uh, journalists who were uh, who who with him during the trip, he mentioned that this new Ch new Chinese ambassador is going to arrive next week in Kinshasa to show that's a new relation. We are going to move to different 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 direction. So we're gonna see what's going to happen. So in terms of presence of China in DRC, it remains solid. But let's also keep in mind that recently we've been hearing and seeing DRC trying to get more investment from uh, from uh, Emirates from 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 Gulf countries, especially in the Emirates, where we are talking about deals that might be signed into Katanga region around different cobalt and maybe copper projects. So we might see a new players coming into the DRC because Emirates have been trying, especially Dubai, have been really trying to get more interest in the DRC. They signed an agreement and were to build a gold operation in the eastern of the DRC. They're not trying to expand their presence in the southern part of the DRC. So we might see new player coming in. Is the, the But the, the, the arrivals of those new players doesn't really threaten Chinese presence in the country because as we've seen it, it's been years that China has been there and they've kind of learned to play the game and DRC is a very difficult and complex uh, context where somehow I do believe that Congolese politicians, they also appreciate the way China do business in DRC and they would like them to stay, especially in those election years and something I'd like to mention just to tell you how much something small details can kind of tell you the situation of how politics is, been, is, is played in DRC. So Prior to President Chisekedi's trip to, Be to Beijing, SICOM uh, in the joint venture that was supposed to be talked about uh, granted $300,000 to the President's Wife Foundation to help uh, go relieve a victim of flood that was happening in the eastern part of DRC. 300,000 kids, nothing. But it just those kind of gestures and action tells you if that's happened like this, you just kind of try to imagine what could happen later on in different circumstances. Just so 
the circumstances are complex and different, so you have to take in mind that, yeah, China is still there. It won't go anywhere. Um, they're looking to remain there for a long time. And let's not forget the security aspect of this. Right before President Chesakady went to Beijing, three of nine CH4 rainbow drones landed in the Congo. Uh, again, six more are coming. These are important tools that the the army is going to use in the fight against M23 in the east of the country. Also, there were high-level ministerial-level talks in Beijing. And one of the announcements that was actually the most substantive of the announcements in many ways was a defense cooperation agreement in terms of the Chinese helping to improve governance and training of the Congolese military. And Congo's military and the DRC and the FARDC in particular are notoriously undisciplined. So that could be an area where the Chinese make a contribution. One of the points that I made in our coverage was, let's not forget that the Chinese have a rather large peacekeeping contingent in the eastern DRC under blue helmets. But they, that means they've got some folks who've got experience on the ground. So those PLA soldiers, once they rotate out of the UN, could then come back and work with the military as trainers and on the governance side. So arms and governance in the military side is something to keep an eye on. Okay, very quickly, very, very quickly, because we're, we're really over time now. Um, give us, you know, where does this go from here? We've got seven months until the election. Is there going to be a renegotiation deal? Is there going to be a minerals trading deal? Are we going to see anything different, you know, that from now until December and that election? I don't believe so. When you look at the context and the situation, the Chinese, the complaint the Chinese made, we don't expect to see much. And what about the contracts? Any progress on the contracts? Ne renegotiation, not so far, but we're going to have surely an evaluation now made by the both sides. And based on that, maybe they're going to decide which way to go. Because clearly Beijing was not okay with the evaluation. The one-side evaluation was made by Kinshasa about the Sikomin deal. So I think they're going to have to talk and see to make to both of them to evaluate with the implementation of that deal. And from there, they're going to decide. If you want to follow all the great work that Giro is doing, you can go to Projet Afrique Chine. The links are in the show notes. That's the French language website. He writes two newsletters a week. It's free. He also does podcasts and he does in English on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash China Africa Project. You can find his weekly commentaries and he did a preview of the trip and I, we're going to do a wrap of the trip as well this week so he's got these great youtube videos where he's kind of breaking everything down and it's just awesome if people want to follow what you are reading and writing where can they find you on twitter so they can find me personally on my personal account on Twitter on Christian Giraud, Christian Giraud, G-E-R-A-U-D, in one word, and they all, in one word, and they can also find uh, Projet Afrique Chine on Twitter with uh, Afrique, with a K, Afrique Chine. So yeah, that's where they can find us. All those links, don't worry if you didn't write that all down, they're all below in the show notes. And Christian Geronima and Kobus van Staden are part of this amazing team that we have now at the China Global South Project, who's putting together a, just such amazing work. Again, we're going to tease the project that Gero is working on that's coming out this summer. It's just incredible. The work, though, that he does and that Kobus does and that we're all doing requires your support. And that support can be done through subscribing to the China Global South Project to get our daily newsletter, to get access to our research, all of our tools, the podcast transcripts, everything. And you're supporting independent journalism and analysis from the likes of Giro 
and our editors in Africa, the Middle East, and here in Asia. So if you want to subscribe, go to ChinaGlobalSouth.com slash subscribe. You'll get a free trial for 30 days just to see if you like it. We hope that you will. And your subscription goes to support the independent journalism that we are doing. So we really appreciate it. So for Giraud and Cobus, I'm Eric Olander. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Tag us on Twitter at ChinaGSProject and visit us at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. If you speak French, check out our full coverage at ProjetAfriqueChine.com and AfriqueChine on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic. <laughs>